Let's talk about digital identity, the podcast connecting identity and business. I am your host, Oscar Santolaya. Hello, and thank you for joining a new episode of Let's Talk About Digital Identity. And today we'll hear some new ideas about open finance, open banking, and definitely a bit more. For that, we have our special guest today, who is Michelle Beos. She is the CEO and founder of Finavator, an award-winning payments and future of finance consultancy. She is also a strategic advisor to fintechs, Money 2020 Rise Up alumni, a global council member of Women in Payments, the membership chair at Canadian Prepaid Providers Organization, a payment advisor at National Crowdfunding and Fintech Association of Canada, and a board member at Open Banking Initiative Canada. Michelle started Finnovator as she is passionate about payments and financial inclusion. She has 20 years of extensive industry experience driving innovation across the retail and payments industry. Hello, Michelle. Hi, Oscar. How are you? Very good. I'm really happy to have you here in the show. Happy to be here as well. Excellent. So, Michelle, let's talk about digital identity. I want to start hearing a bit about yourself and your journey to the world of identity. Yeah, I'm happy to share a little bit. I actually spent 20 years in the corporate space, six years in telco, um, eight years in online shopping, affiliate marketing, ran Alaska, Lufthansa, Delta United, online shopping mall platforms. I really got to understand the relationship between customer and loyalty infrastructure. And then I moved into the payment space, working for the largest prepaid company globally called Incom out of their international office for 30 countries and was running sales and marketing, launched their B2B division, got to see what was happening in innovation across these 30 other countries, including Singapore, Australia, UK, helped launch WeChat in North America at 7-Eleven through the gift card rail QR payment system and truly realized a little fearful that my kids were going to end up with Asian banking due to the advancements and how far beyond where we are in North America, Asia basically was from a banking infrastructure set in 2017. And I took a leap into the startup world focused on blockchain, digital identity at a startup as a chief client officer in 2018. And after a year with them and helping with Bahama digital ID infrastructure and helping consent on blockchain, actually won Money 2020 Rise Up, where they pick out of 500 women, 30 women, to come into the Vegas largest payments conference in the world and have a separate accelerated track. And as soon as I found out that I had won one of those coveted 30 spots, I quit my job at the startup and started Finnovator, which is actually now four years ago in July. And starting this consultancy, did not have any consultancy experience, but did have all of my background, which I felt was touching the future of finance from telco infrastructure to affiliate marketing, online shopping, the move to digital, prepaid payment infrastructures, how they were backing all new challenger bank infrastructure, BAS infrastructure, and then digital ID. So Finnovator truly became my ability to try and help banks, credit unions, fintechs, and corporations move to the future of finance and really have enjoyed my journey out on my own. Yeah, definitely quite interesting because you have been involved in several industries that are yeah pretty different itself. So, but many are 
yeah, oriented to the interacting with the customer, so understanding how the customer, what the customer needs, etc. And then just in the last year, you came to identity. So now you have this amazing experience and you're doing your own consultancy. As you mentioned, you are you've been working a lot with payments and that is leading you to the future of finance. So the topics we like to start addressing today are open banking and open finance. If you can give us what are these two terms in a nutshell, what would you say? Yeah, I think at its simplest point, open banking, which started in the UK in 2017, is a safe and secure way to share data in an ecosystem. So thinking of back to my telco days, when I started, you would sign up to one provider for three years and you couldn't leave. If you left, there was a penalty and your number was owned by that telco. So if you went to a different telco because they had a better service, you'd basically lose your identity, which was your phone number, and have to send an email to all of your friends with your new number. And they would have to reprogram your phone number in their phones. There was something called open telco, or at least number portability, that was mandated in Canada and many other countries around 2015. And this allowed to empower the consumer to officially own their phone number. So if I left one telco to go to another, I didn't have to lose my identity, which I had built for, let's say, 10 years, as this phone number represents myself. So I was able to port it to a competitor to get better service. To me, open banking is that same concept of having a safe and secure way to port my data from one bank to another bank, from one bank to a fintech, from a bank to a wealth advisor. So really just giving me the freedom that the information that is mine, that defines me, can be utilized to help me get a better loan, help me get a better rate, help me get the service that is customized to myself based on the data that happens to live with my current bank. So open banking was a regulated movement that started in the UK to force the CMA9, which is the nine biggest banks in the UK, to create an API that was standardized to allow for safe and secure data sharing that was all based on consumer consent, as well as create competition by allowing fintechs or third-party providers who hit a certain bar of certification to be allowed in the system. So let's say Revolut, if you were a Lloyd's customer and you wanted to go to Revolut and you wanted Revolut to have these five pieces of data to offer you a different product that maybe had better pricing, you were able to do that through consent through the Revolut app. And that data was then able to safely port from Lloyd's to Revolut. And the biggest point I think on all of this is in open banking, there is a right to delete your data. So that data can then be deleted. And to me, this is creating less data in the world and having more control over it as a consumer, as well as empowering new services, new offerings, new companies to help serve the underserved and help serve the current market in a better, more efficient way. Yes. And I like your analogy. You started talking analogy of in telecommunication, in the mobile consumer mobile networks, the mobile number portability, which is something I think at this point, I'm not sure it's everywhere in the world, but I think it's by large in many countries it's available and it's something that today we take for granted. But it was very painful. Not long ago, it was very painful as you have described. So the just the idea of having a similar easiness in 
translated to the banks. Sounds like a dream for the ones who still have not experienced. I have not experienced something like that yet. Yeah, so definitely sounds like a great scene to keep it uh, spreading. And you have summarized saying that it's open banking is in a nutshell is securely sharing data of the consumers. No? So one consumer can move to a, from one bank to another or even a fintech, as you mentioned. So. Yeah, and I think the evolution of that is open finance, which I would say is a hot topic in today's market. The UK is moving to PSD3, which is bringing them to open finance. Australia started with open data as a concept through a consumer data right for all citizens across five industries, which I think is the most concise vision across all countries. So they started with open banking, moved to open finance, open telco, open energy, and then they're going to land at open data. And it's all centered around a consumer data right across all data. Very empowering vision coming out of Australia. But many countries are just starting with open finance. Turkey, Nigeria, Saudi Arabia, Brazil just moved to open finance. So just to describe it, it really is instead of just being banking, fintech, third party payments data or bank account data, it's broadening the spectrum to be insurance, wealth, mortgages, kind of more of a holistic view of anything that touches your finances. So it's really expanding to allow you to port your data for multiple different aspects of finance. Okay, so the key here in open finance is that you do similar, let's say, portability, we use it, you use the same word, between different services, not necessarily financial services, but as you said, that touch some financial data, correct? Yes, so if you want to use some data from your Lloyd's account to help you get a faster, cheaper, better mortgage that's more customized to you, Maybe that mortgage provider is not a bank, but they're a licensed mortgage provider that has certified in the system, then you'd be able to facilitate that data sharing. Same example to a wealth provider or an insurance provider. Correct. And besides that benefits of the portability that we can, I can even visualize on, on my mind, what are the other benefits that there are for both the consumers and for businesses? Yeah, I would say one of the biggest ones is when you think of fintechs, trying to get certain aspects of data and not having to get data they don't need. So only getting the five pieces of data with clear consent from the customer and the customer not having to screen scrape this data out of their account without their knowledge. So a lot of um, screen scraping issues are when open banking first came to fruition in the UK, it's largely because one million UK citizens we're screen scraping, which is a service that is being utilized where it looks like you're logging into your bank, you're putting in your passcode, and then it's giving access to that fintech to look at your overarching account and scrape the whole data to only grab the five pieces they need to push it into the system. So what this does is A, it's unsecure. B, the customer has no idea. They're breaching their bank agreement by using the service. And then the fintech ends up with all this data they don't need or want to have to store it safely and securely when they only needed the five pieces. So when you get to an open banking system, they request the five pieces, they get the five pieces in a safe, secure type of API. And then therefore, they're able to delete those five pieces of data because the way that it was coded into the system if so requested by the customer. So it's a data management system, all based on consent. Yeah, it sounds pretty good, absolutely, because imagine that all my data that is on my bank is passed to the, let's say, insurance, and then 
the insurance has the duty to delete whatever they don't need is well <laughs> sounds terrible <laughs> uh, because you know the less data that is transferred, the less data that is stored somewhere, the lower the risk of so many data breaches that are happening nowadays. Yeah, on the data breach point, I always like to bring up, unfortunately, Marriott because they had 7.1 million data breach occurrence at one time. And it was an internal issue. They were like layering in some accounting or loyalty system, and it was an internal data breach. And this was back, I think, in 2018. They didn't compensate any of the users. But think about anytime you check into a hotel, at this point, they ask for your driver's license or your passport plus your credit card. The amount of data a hotel has on you is pretty concerning, considering they don't have the data security standards that you would have at a bank. So if we can get to a world, getting to your digital identity questions, where a QR check-in doesn't actually have them store any of my data, but just validate I am who I say I am, so that they don't need to actually hold my actual passport image with all of my sensitive data in a non-secure, I don't want to say non-secure, but not highly secure infrastructure. Yeah, exactly. Another good example, obviously, the hotels, they will benefit. Both the businesses and the consumers would benefit with open finance. And yes, I start while you explain this idea of, the, okay, some of the data has passes from one, let's say from the bank to the insurance company, but just the minimum should be passing. So that also thinking from the identity point of view and imagining the federation, right? So at this point, what is on your view the the role of identity on this paradigm that you just described? Yeah, I think it's quite paramount as a base layer to most systems, because if you can authenticate you are who you say you are, that's the most important part of any one transaction, especially a transaction that has to do with your data or has to do with your finances. So I think it's quite crucial that we find a way that authenticates ourselves, especially with AI and all of this machine learning infrastructure, cybersecurity challenges. How do we ensure that we are the only entity that is Michelle Bayo and that I can ensurely authenticate myself before I do a data share from one bank to the other or before I do a financial transaction? And we're going to have to layer up from our two off six-digit code being sent to a phone text to authenticate yourself as we move forward in the future of finance. So I, I think digital identity is crucial and has to be put into a system in a way that ensures that there's only one identity for any one person. Yeah, indeed. It has to be some level of strong authentication. That That is a must. And as you have mentioned a bit earlier also, the, always with a consent in every of these data sharing transactions. Now, moving into what are the standards to also understand, without going too much detail, you mentioned that this started in UK and in UK is there are more implementations. This is really happening in real. But what are the, the main standards that are making this possible or are going to make this even more possible if we think of open finance? Yeah, so you know what's interesting is as you look at the world at the moment, and you look at open banking, open finance, not all countries have a digital identity infrastructure. So what that does is make the open banking infrastructure more complex, harder to authenticate, and 
I think even more than open banking, real-time rail infrastructure needs the authentication, digital identity for any type of fraud reduction of authenticating you are who you say you are, and it's going to an entity who is authenticated so that we could remove the scams out of the system. I'd say the best digital identity infrastructure is probably the Indian-based UPI. It was government-issued. It was a mass amount of people, and it was done very early on on a global scale. It's not the exact model that probably should be utilized for other countries, but they have definitely, through their digital identity framework, have been able to even, there's homeless people in India with QR codes and a bank account due to their digital identity infrastructure. And when you pass them in the streets or you pass a a tiny shop selling something, they have QR-based payment infrastructure that is largely attached to their digital identity, which creates a more financial inclusive infrastructure. In Australia, they have a digital identity framework, but it's not as widespread to the same degree as India. The UK is still working on their digital identity infrastructure. So not every country has lined up open banking, digital identity, and real-time rail. But these are three very crucial aspects to the future of finance because the authentication from digital ID is a safety point. The real-time rail is the fast and secure movement of the funds. And the open banking is the safe consent-driven data sharing aspect. So once you have all three of them, you're really setting yourself up to be facilitating the future of finance. You mentioned one term that maybe is not so familiar, at least for me. You mentioned real, real-time realm. What is that exactly? Yeah, the real-time rail is a instant payment system, sometimes called that. And the first one ever created was in Switzerland, actually, in 1989. 66 countries have faster payment systems. The UK launched quite, quite a long time ago, but the US just launched their FedNow, is what it's called in the US, which is their real-time instant payment rail just this year and Canada hasn't launched theirs just yet. So there's many countries who have this payment infrastructure. When you look at the US last year or Canada still, it takes three to five days for bank payments to clear. And that's just the older infrastructure of payment settlement. Okay, okay, perfect. Yes, indeed, you have emphasized that all this component needed in, of course, the national digital identification is a key point. You are correct. Not many countries in the world have something... I would say, suitable enough for doing this open finance. I was, in terms also of authentication, that reminds me that, the, for instance, the fintechs has been for a while and not long ago, the authentication just was just username and password, nothing else. No? And of course, now most of the fintechs have something better than that. But yeah, I can see something that takes time. All this component takes time to come together to make possible some of this. Um, use cases. So if you can tell us some of these success stories, now seeing from the perspective of use cases, let's say success stories, if you can from different parts of the world also to illustrate the better. Yeah. So if we're talking digital identity, I think Scandinavia has done probably one of the best jobs. I think Estonia was one of the first. The other really crucial part of digital identity is you can't have CBDC or digital currency in a very safe and secure way without a digital identity framework. So I, I think there's some great examples down that front. When we're talking open finance, open banking, the countries I'm most impressed by, obviously, is Australia. They are a country that has five major banks. They are kind of an oligopoly in the sense that those five banks hold quite a bit of the customer base. But they took an initiative 
past open banking, past open finance, to embed a consumer data right to every citizen across five different industries with a roadmap to start with open banking, move to open finance, open telco, open energy, land with open data, which is really future-proofing their country for the future of the ecosystem, a digital ecosystem, which every business is is now turning into a digital business. So they're going to have a really great base layer of understanding that the customer owns the data, the customer is able to port the data, and the customer is able to delete the data. So by creating a data right infrastructure and then porting it across multiple industries, I think they're going to have incredible innovation and eyes are definitely them as they're enabling this ecosystem that really is kind of the future of any one country's vision of how do you enable digitization of an economy. The other country that I'm pretty impressed by is Brazil in the sense that in the middle of the pandemic, they made their first move to open banking they made a 12-month mandate that they were going to hit an open banking live ecosystem within 12 months and open access to their central bank of Brazil. And therefore, by opening the access to registered TTPs, which are third-party providers, companies like PIX were able to create a fintech that reduced the cost of sending money, took the underbanked, underserved in Brazil, and gave them a digital bank with faster, more affordable payments. And I don't have the exact number, but I believe they're past 7 million customers and doing billions of transactions on a daily basis. And I believe they reduced the cost something like by 40% by being able to have direct access to the central bank and fall directly in line with the open banking system. And after 12 months of being enabled to an open banking system, they immediately started working on an open finance system and are launching that within 12 months. So I think the alignment, the passion, and the execution out of the Brazilian market is pretty impressive. And just the pure enablement of new fintechs, better, more affordable services, and finding ways to serve the underbanked, underserved, they've done a phenomenal job. Yeah, it sounds like that. It sounds definitely amazing. Among all these well, existing use cases and what comes in the future for open bank and open finance, uh, what are some potential privacy issues that you could tell us? Yeah, I think every system has to be truly based in a liability model. This liability model has to be extremely clear to everybody within the system. There has to be protection on that liability model. And I think it's just ensuring that the certification system that allows for third parties to come into the system is robust, is reviewed, that these parties that have been certified inclusive of banks are always looked at to ensure that they continue to be certified, to have access to the system. But I do foresee in the future that customers are going to choose to have some type of insurance on their data that they so choose, just like you have insurance on your travel or insurance on your health, like actual data privacy insurance. Because think of the Marriott issue or gosh, there's data breaches every day of the week. And none of the data breaches have to do with open banking, open finance. They're internal data breaches or external data breaches or hacks. But there's no real repercussion to the customer like or to the actual party who's had this data breach, there might be a, a fine, 
but there's no settlement to the actual end user whose data has been potentially put on the dark web or given to different parties. There's got to be a point where if we have enough of a safe and secure data sharing infrastructure, we should be able to ensure our data and be safe and secure. And if it's breached, have some type of offset. But we have to get to a much safer, secure infrastructure of how data is shared in the first place. So I just truly see that open banking, open finance is creating the pipes for the water to go through and be able to turn them on and turn them off. And we just don't have those pipes today in every country. And I think it's just super important for the next layer of the future of finance. Indeed. Now, if we look at the future, what kind of use cases or what open finance can do in the future? Something that we are not seeing today. Yeah, so in some countries, they started to enable dashboards, like holistic dashboards of your financial health. So in these dashboards due to open banking, you would be able to see what your mortgage is, and then it would be able to AI predict what other offerings you should potentially layer in to add to this product or tell you that your current mortgage is not serving you and that there's three or four other offerings that would be a better mortgage based on your current finances or the market. And then they'd be able to offer you three different companies that you might want to look into. So what this service can then do is you can actually put in your loans. This dashboard would be personalized just for you to see kind of your financial health. Uh, It would help people have an ability to plan better, understand their finances a little bit better. From that perspective, I think it's going to also create a whole bunch of things we haven't even thought of, of new services, new opportunities, uh, new ways to ensure your saving for your retirement, just kind of like Roundup did in the sense of if you're paying for coffee and it's $1.50, rounding it up, or if it's $1.40, rounding it up to $1.50 and then putting that in your pension plan or putting that into a robo-advisor so that you're earning money by saving without knowing it or without feeling it kind of perspective. So I think just like the internet has changed so many ways of what we are doing and made our lives easier in many ways, I do think that open finance layered in with a digital identity can truly help us plan better, execute, have better offerings, save money, and really just be able to plan better for our future. Yeah, a lot to expect for for the future that what open finance will bring us. So, Michelle, last question for you. If For all business leaders that are listening to us now, what is the one actionable idea that they should write on their agendas today? Yeah, I think what they should write is that innovation is driven by ideas and that there's an opportunity, especially now that the world's gone digital, to listen in to panels topics that interest you, but you don't have all the details on similar to this podcast. There's panels happening in Australia on open finance or Brazil that you could listen into. You don't actually have to travel to these conferences, but you can truly grasp the innovation that's happening in other countries and then think about how you can create something for your citizens, for your company to pivot and start moving towards the future of finance by learning from other countries who are already there. Yeah, definitely. I couldn't agree more. And that's kind of one learning more about these interesting topics that are going to impact us uh, mostly positively in today, in the future. It's also one reason why we invited you. So thank you. Thanks a lot for 
for being with us. And this was really fascinating conversation with you, Michelle. If people would like to follow the conversation with you or know more about what you're doing, what are the best ways for that? Yeah, definitely to follow me on LinkedIn. Simply find Michelle Bayo, follow Finnovator on LinkedIn and Michelle Bayo, as well as reaching out to us on our website at finnovator.com. Okay, excellent. Many ways to do it. So again, Michelle, it was a pleasure talking with you and all the best. Thank you so much, Oscar. It was a pleasure being here. Have a wonderful day. Thanks for listening to this episode of Let's Talk About Digital Identity, produced by UbiSecure. Stay up to date with episode at ubisecure.com slash podcast or join us on Twitter at ubisecure and use the hashtag LTADI. Until next time, 